0: A pastor in England told about the time that he and his family went to the zoo. And he said that he was like a kid. He was excited to see all the different kinds of animals and creatures. He said, we saw kangaroos, giraffes, leopards, lions, and tigers. It was all very exciting. But he continued, there was one creature that was on display that was easily missed. They had a little cage with the caption, the most dangerous animal in the world. And there was no wild animal inside the cage. Instead, the back of the cage was open. People could walk into it, have their photo taken behind the bars, and above the sign said, the most dangerous animal in the world. And if we think about it, that really is true, that our own human race has caused more damage and destruction to the world than all the animals in the world put together. Through the centuries, human beings have been responsible for incredible acts of cruelty selfishness, hate, greed. Whenever we listen to the news or see the news on the internet or listen on the TV, we hear of wrongdoing and evil. We see new ways of wrongdoing, new depths to which humanity seems to be sinking. We see murders, crimes, wars, deceits, and then it's all brought to real life with all these reality TV shows and stuff, 2020 and Dateline and all those, where they used to really do investigative reporting, now they just talk about the latest murder and how the person was caught or not caught. And a common reaction is to despair about the state of the world and about humanity. To give up on the world, and remember that Broadway musical of the 60s and 70s, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. Now one might despair even more if we look at what American Christianity has so often become. Back in 2005, there was a study done that has become amazingly predictive It accounts much for the state of of the American church today. In 2005, a man by the name of Christian Smith and a woman by the name of Melinda Denton wrote what they called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And based on interviews with about 3,000 teenagers, they described what they considered to be the common religious belief among American teenagers that they described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, I'll go on to explain those, so don't get hung up on, well, what does that mean? Don't get too confused, because we'll explain it. But the author summed up these beliefs as having five elements. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Okay, we're seeing. (laughs) Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, before you criticize the younger generation of 13 years ago, we must ask, where did they get these views? It had to come from the parents. It had to come from what they were taught. It had to come from what they were taught and by what was modeled for them. I've been previewing these days a video series on parenting by Chuck Ingram that we're hoping to have parenting classes this spring sometime for the people in our church who work with kids and with families and, of course, with the parents. And... The video series is called Effective Parenting in a Defective World. What a great title, by Chip Ingram. And Chip Ingram says in the very first video that most parents believe that the goal of parenting is to make your kids happy and successful. Of course, that goes along with number three here, where it says the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And if you're successful, maybe you feel good about oneself. But he says that's not the biblical way at all. The biblical way, the goal of parenting is to make our kids holy, make them holy. And that's done by teaching them first to obey their parents so that they will obey God. Well, back to the study of 3,000 teens. went on to explain what they meant when they described the common religious beliefs among American teenagers as moralistic, therapeutic deism. And the authors of the study believe that, quote, A significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition, but rather substantially has morphed into Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, what they call Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. Sadly, it seems to me that the authors are really on target here. Much of what goes under the banner of Christianity today is moralistic, in that people believe that good people go to heaven, even though the standards of what is meant by good are, are not in line with the Bible often. It is therapeutic in that feeling good about yourself is the main reason to go to church and to believe in Jesus. It can help you succeed in your goals. You can be successful and it is deism, remember deism, you might not remember this, but the deists believe that, that God is just like the big watchmaker. He created the world and then just lets it run and it's, and it's on his own. And that was popular in the early days of our founding fathers for the United States. And it is deism in that you really don't need a savior from sin because you're a good person. God is there when you need him, but the rest of the time, just believe in yourself, pursue your dreams... Well, God, his glory and the cross are not at the center of the belief system. Now I hope you can see how far moralistic therapeutic deism is from the gospel that Paul sets forth for us in the, the book of Romans. The basic question, Romans chapter five, verses twenty and twenty-one is basic questions are, are you going to live your life by law or by grace? Which one is going to rule your Your life, sin or grace? Uh, What are your religious beliefs that determine how you live? What is your central goal in life? We're going to see that if we answer these kinds of questions wrongly, or if we live by the wrong beliefs, it doesn't make us better people to follow our beliefs, no matter how moral they might be. It makes us more sinful people. Without Christ, living by God's law has the opposite effect that people intend. Living by law or some kind of moral code outside of Christ, living by a set of rules and regulations, in actuality makes a person more of a sinner than does living by grace. In fact, before we finish chapters 6, 7, and 8 in in Paul's letter to the Romans, we're going to discover you won't have victory over sin in your life until you learn to live by grace instead of law. And so in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, we see two basic contrasts here between law and grace. In the first contrast, we see how transgression increases on account of the law in contrast to how grace abounds. And in the second contrast, we see how sin reigns in death while grace reigns to eternal life. So please turn once again to Romans chapter 5, the 20th verse. The fifth chapter of Romans, verse 20, page 1385. In this first contrast, Paul tells us why God gave the law. Here we see one of the purposes of the law. Verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. For where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul says that one of the purposes of the law was so that transgression would increase. Paul's words would have been utterly shocking to Jewish readers at the time. The law came in so that transgression would increase. The average Jew would have thought that the law was given or came in to restrain sin, not to cause it to increase. Most Jews would do a double take and say, did I I read that correctly? Is that what Paul's really saying? Paul's assertion definitely got their attention. Now, before we get into this, we know that the fault, whatever fault is here, is not with the law of God, right? Right? Sin doesn't increase because there's flaws in the law somehow. God's word tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect. The 7th verse of the 19th Psalm, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The 119th Psalm, the longest psalm in the Bible, is a testimony of how we are to love God's law. We are to delight in it. The word translated delight there, the Hebrew word sha'ah, is the same word that's used in the millennial kingdom where the child plays by the den of the cobra. The word delight means to romp, to enjoy. We delight in God's law. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. And then the 31st, 35th verse of Psalm 119. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Ten times in the 119th Psalm, the psalmist expresses his delight in God's law. Twelve times he expresses his love for God's law. But there's a couple of things we need to understand about the law of God. The first is, the law does not restrain sin at the heart level. The law does not restrain sin at the heart level. There is a sense in which both civil laws that we live under in our country and our community and God's law restrain sin externally. The speed laws cause us to slow down, especially when we see a police car. And I've told you the story before. I heard the the sirens. I looked all over the place. I didn't see the police car until it pulled in behind me in my driveway off of the alley. (laughs) But that's a whole other story. You know, the speed laws most of the time cause us to slow down. Laws against theft, against murder, and other things may restrain people who otherwise would do those things or be tempted to them. When I grew up, my dad said, we lock this to keep the honest people honest because if it's a bad person, they're going to break the lock and they're going to get in however they want to. You see, the law cannot restrain the evil desires of the fallen human heart. I still want to speed if I think nobody's looking. Greed makes me want to steal, the law cannot bring my sinful heart into submission. Jesus hit the Pharisees with their hypocrisy on these things. Outward they, outwardly, they practice obedience to the law so that others think that, well, they're really righteous. They're really good people. But in their hearts, Jesus said, they were full of self-indulgence, uncleanness, unlawlessness. They were like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And the second thing we need to understand about God's perfect law is the main purpose as it pertains to Jesus Christ. So to do that, please turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 at verse 21. The third chapter of Galatians, the 21st verse, page 1426 in the Bibles in the rack. In this third chapter of Galatians, Paul has been talking about why God gave the law. He has said that the law was given for the purpose of defining transgressions. That is, it tells us what sin is. This is a sin, this is not a sin, this is a sin. You want to know what is sin? Read the law. And in verse 21, Paul asks a rhetorical question that would have been on people's minds at this point, as they read Paul's letter. In verse 21, he says, "Is Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is there a discrepancy between the law and God's promises? Paul says, may it never be, that phrase, may, Geneton," no, no, never, that he uses in Romans and Galatians a lot. Now watch this at the end of verse 21, for a a law had been given which was able to impart life. If a law had been given which is able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. The law was given to tell us what sin is, but the law has no ability to impart life or give righteousness. If life and righteousness could come through keeping the law, then Jesus would not have had to die on the cross, right? In other words, don't make the law walk on all fours. That is, try to make it do something it could never do that that God never intended to do that it doesn't have the ability to do. Because keeping the law does not make a person righteous, nor does it impart life. Now go to down to verse 24 of this third chapter of Galatians, because here we see another purpose of God's perfect law that we should love. Verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under A tutor. Paul uses an illustration here that would have been familiar to his readers at the time. It's the illustration of a child guardian or a child conductor, a tutor here. In many Roman and Greek households, well-educated slaves were given the responsibility to take the children to and from school and watch over them during the day. Sometimes they would teach the children, sometimes they would protect, sometimes they'd prohibit them from doing something, and oftentimes they even would discipline the children. That's what Paul means here by a schoolmaster, as some translations say, or a tutor. Don't read into this our modern concept of of a school teacher. The transliteration of the Greek gives us the word pedagogue, which literally means a child conductor. And by using this illustration, Paul is saying several things about Jews and the law. First, he is saying that the Jews were not born through the law, but rather they were brought up under the law. The child conductor was not the child's father. He was the child's guardian. He was the child's disciplinarian. So the law did not give life to Israel. The law regulated life. And the second thing Paul says is even more important. The work of the guardian or the child conductor was preparation for the child's maturity. Once the child came of age, he no longer needed the guardian. So the law was a preparation for the nation of Israel until the coming of the promised seed, Jesus Christ. During the centuries of Jewish history, the law was preparing them for the coming of Christ, and the demands of the law reminded the people also that they needed a Savior because nobody could live up to it. And a good example of this purpose of the law is the account of the rich young ruler. Remember, he came to Jesus, and this young man had everything anybody could desire. He had it all, but he wasn't satisfied. He had tried to keep the commandments all his life, but still something was missing. But these commandments had brought him to Christ, right? Right? This is one of the purposes of the law, to create in lost sinners a sense of guilt and need. The sad thing is that the young man was not honest as he looked into the mirror of the law. The last commandment, thou shalt not covet, totally escaped him, and he went away without eternal life. The law had performed its purpose. The Savior had come, and when we receive Christ, the guardian is no longer needed. And with that, we come back to Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and why Paul says the law was given. The 20th verse again, the law came in so that transgression would increase. The law came in, see those two words, so that, that means a purpose clause follows this. Here is the purpose, so that transgression would increase. And Paul isn't just describing what actually happened, that the law came in and transgression kept increasing. He's saying that this is God's intent, this is God's purpose all along in giving the law was so that transgression would increase. As we've seen, this is not God's only purpose in giving the law, or it's not even the ultimate purpose, but the sense here is that the law actually increases sin. It didn't make the human race better as fallen in Adam, it made it made us worse. Here's, here's what happens. One of the ways that the law increases sin is by stimulating our sinful flesh to disobey it. The law of the Lord, which is holy, which is perfect, combines with our rebellious flesh to entice sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, if you want to turn over a page or whatever it is in your Bibles. Chapter 7 of Romans, the 7th and 8th verse. He says, when the law says you shall not covet, he says it produced in him coveting of every kind. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. By sin is dead, it it has no power. But once he knew that coveting is a sin, it had all kinds of power in his life. It's like the little old lady who told the preacher that she wished he'd quit quoting the Ten Commandments every week because he was putting wrong ideas into people's heads. (laughs) We've all had the same kind of experience. I've used this example before. You're walking down the street, uh, down a sidewalk, and there's a tall wooden fence that goes the whole length of the block, and you just walk on the sidewalk. You don't think anything about it. One day you're walking past the fence, along the fence, and somebody has posted a sign, do not look into this knothole. The law has been given, as it were. And what do you want to do? You want to sneak back later and look in the knothole to see what you're not supposed to see. So Paul is saying something quite astonishing about the law. It says that much of people's sin is actually because of the law, not despite it. In fact, it even suggests that one of the reasons the law was given to increase sin. It's human nature want to do things that are forbidden. I read a story one time about a hotel owner who was building this beautiful hotel, and he built it on a pier that that jutted out into a lake. And the hotel was brand new, and it was ready for opening, and he was struck with the fear that people would want to fish out the windows uh, of the hotel. So he put up signs in all the rooms, do not fish out your windows. The hotel then opened, and immediately he was faced with broken window after broken window because the people above were trying to fish out the windows. He put up more and more signs, but it still continued. Eventually, he reached desperation. He sought advice on how to stop people fishing from the windows. The advice that he got might sound surprising. He was told to take all the signs down. He did this, and right away, the problem stopped. God is wiser than the hotel owner. He gave the law knowing that people would want to break it as soon as they heard it. In fact, one of the reasons that he gave it was to show us that trying to live by law did not work, to show us that we could not perfectly keep the law and grow and develop in ourselves or as a a society on our own through our own human goodness. All through the centuries, people have tried to make the world a better place. Through keeping sets of laws in one form or another. Why do we send all those people to Washington, D.C. or the capital over in Boise? Because they think, we think they're going to make our life better by passing laws that, that we agree with. But we are still evil, and the world continues descending into a worse and worse mess despite God having given his law. Law, therefore, is not the answer. But he goes on, Paul goes on in verse 20, but where sin increased... Grace abounded. Where sin increased, grace abounded. Verse twenty again. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's response to increased sin was grace abounding all the more. The Greek word that is translated increase and increased where it refers to sin means literally to count, to count the sins. To add it up. One would say that sin piled up in a way that we could count the sins, and the the sins kept getting major and measurably bigger. But the root of the word translated abounded when it refers to grace means to overflow. Means to have more than enough. And then Paul adds the Greek word hyper, which is translated here all the more. Hyper-abounded, grace abounded. So we could translate it where sins added up grace superabounded Donald Gray Barnhouse paraphrased it where sin reached a high level mark grace completely flooded the world James Boyce develops two points regarding superabundant grace first he says grace is not withheld because of sin God doesn't withhold his grace because of sin he gives more grace and God's grace is never reduced because of sin it's more He points out that we usually don't operate this way. If someone wrongs us or offends us, we withdraw from that person and we do not treat them graciously. God's not like this. Jesus died on the cross. Sinners crucified his son who came to save them. And after the resurrection, Jesus easily could have instructed his disciples, Get out of this evil city of Jerusalem. It does not deserve to hear the gospel. Because they're so evil. But instead he told them that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And then he added, beginning from Jerusalem. I like the way one pastor asked a, a series of questions or asked, them, asked a question and then, then answered them. He says, where can God's grace most clearly be seen? Where could God's grace most clearly be seen? He says, is it in a beautiful cathedral where the choir perfectly sings a wonderful anthem of praise? Is that where we see God's grace most clearly? He says, no, it isn't. Is it in the life of an aid worker selflessly giving him or herself for others without thought of return? No, it isn't. Is it in the life of human rights advocate fearlessly speaking out on behalf of the oppressed, the powerless, the voiceless? No, it isn't. Is it in the happiest, most loving home and family in the world? No, it isn't. Is it in the midst of Make Poverty History campaign? No, it isn't. Is it where people are standing up for morality in an increasingly immoral world? No, it isn't. He says, the Bible tells us that the greatest display in intensity of God's grace and favor is in none of the places where we might expect to find it. He says, let us remind ourselves of what we have just read. Where sin did abound, grace did abound all the more. The grace of God is at its most intense, not in the midst of righteousness and goodness, but in the midst of sin and evil. That is when his love is displayed the most. The pastor I just quoted is from England. His name is Bramwell Hayes, and he's with the Salvation Army. And he talks about something that I've never noticed in America. He talked about stinging nettles. Now, those I noticed. I cannot tell you how many times I've been up Cascade, gotten in the stinging nettles, even though you know what they look like, somehow you still get into them. We're up at Cathedral Pines Baptist Camp up above Sun Valley, and you, you got the stinging nettles. You know, in recent days, I've been describing my, my childhood as bit by every dog and stepped on every nail. Now I'm going to be sad, stung by every stinging nettle. <laughs> you know. But uh, he goes on to explain that in England, apparently, Pastor Hayes related the sin and grace reminded him of stinging nettles and dock leaves. Dock leaves. He says in England they grow together. Where stinging nettles grow, the dock leaves grow with them. He said that when he was a child, they were always falling into the nettles and getting stung and hurt, but it was okay because all they'd have to do was to rub themselves with a dock leaf. He said that all the pain and the hurt would go and their skin would not blister. It would be just as it was before. God had given them a natural cure. Nettles and dock leaves grow side by side. The more nettles that grow in a spot, the more dock leaves grow with them. So next time I'm going up the Cascade, I'm going to look to see if there's any dock leaves, any there, any grace. But it's the same with sin and grace. Where there is sin and evil, there's always the grace of God waiting to cure, waiting to make us whole again, to forgive us, to restore us to how we should be. The more evil there is, the greater is God's grace to deal with it. No matter how bad things Yet, God is better. And that applies to the world around us, but more importantly, it applies to the world within us. We know that in our nature we are sinful. That we do not live in relationship with God. The relationship with God that we are created to because of our, our sin and our rebellion. We we know that naturally we're part of the problem even with the world. Trying to keep some law, morality, or ethical standard does not alter that We remain the same people with the same basic nature. But the message of Romans tells us that we've never gone too far for God's grace in his son. That God's grace through the death of Jesus Christ, the the ultimate expression of grace. God's grace is there to restore us, to change our nature, to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, that's where we really have to start if we want to change and improve the world, isn't it? By allowing God's grace to heal us spiritually, to make us whole, to forgive us, make us a new person. The abundant and sufficient grace of God is the answer to the evil in the world and the sin in our own lives. So in the first contrast in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, we see how as transgression increases, grace abounds. In the second contrast, and we'll only look at this briefly this morning, how sin reigns in death while grace reigns in eternal life. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 5, grace abounded all the more, 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigned in death, but grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life. One brings death, the other brings life. The two reigns are contrasted here. Because of Adam's disobedience, death reigned. All you have to do is, in Genesis chapter 5, is read the book of the generations of Adam. And note the solemn repetition of the phrase, and he died. And he died. He lived so many years and he died. He lived so many years and he died. According to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. One out of one don't make it or do make it to death, however you want to look at that. Not only does death get the last word for sinners, sin rules over life. Over and over again, the book of Romans hammers on the fact that outside of Jesus Christ, no matter how hard a person tries to be a good person, He or she is a slave to sin. Paul asked a question in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. The 16th verse of Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Because sin reigns in men's life, death is also reigning. But Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, we enter into a new kingdom. So we're going to start talking about next time in chapter 6. We come into a new sphere. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we receive Jesus Christ, we get a new nature, a new nature that he gives to us with the capacity to live in a sphere where we do not have to sin anymore. That's one of the great things of of regeneration, of being born again. Before, we were enslaved to sin, and that's all we could do. We'd get a few things right once in a while, but our capacity was to sin. Now our capacity in Christ is to righteousness. Yeah, we're still going to sin once in a while, and we'll talk about that in, in the coming weeks. But Jesus said, we enter a new kingdom, a new sphere, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is the sphere in which we live in Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we are declared righteous, we have peace with God, we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. Look at verse 17 of Romans chapter 5. And we close with this. For if by the transgression of the one, that is, Adam, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, through Adam, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Beginning next week, we're going to see a beautiful picture, a vivid portrayal in Romans chapter 6 that the displays through a wonderful picture what it looks like when grace reigns, grace and righteousness reign in our life through Jesus Christ. The sphere that we walk in and live in as we walk by the Spirit and do not carry out the deeds of the flesh. So shall we pray? Father, I thank you that uh, through the words of the many songs that we sang this morning, that we had the opportunity to express how amazing your grace is. Marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. So Father, especially this morning, I'm thanking you for, for giving us music so that we have a way, a wonderful way, that, that brings emotion but also brings truth, Father that we can express your grace that you have given to us in gratitude and thanksgiving and to be overwhelmed by by your grace. And Father, I pray that as we go from here this morning, Lord, that as we're thinking about these things and about what you have shown us uh, with the law versus grace, that this would be a day, this would be a time that each one of us through your Holy Spirit might even begin to walk and and live in a different kind of life than than what we were even before we came in this place this morning, Lord. Or to continue in in that grace that abounds in our own lives. And we we thank you and give you thanks for this in Jesus.